You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, everyone. So we've heard this parable a lot over the years, right? The parable of the Good Samaritan. So we decided to title uh, today's sermon, The Good Bandit. Um, Take a different look at it, perhaps. Um, Take a a common story that we've heard before and twist it just a bit and ask certain questions maybe we haven't asked before. Now, as you probably already know, this story occurs only in the Gospel of Luke. Luke is the only one to tell us of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, Luke, he kind of liked to tell his own story in a lot of ways. He's the only one to tell us of the parable of the prodigal son. Um, And there's several other things that are unique to Luke's gospel. The story um, when Jesus is on the cross and he's talking to the other thief and the the thief that kind of believes, the good thief, that's also unique to Luke. So um, this story is told uh, in a context uh, the, the original part, the whole great commandment, love God and love neighbor, you find that in other Gospels, but when we find it there, it's Jesus who's telling us this. Jesus is summarizing for us that the whole law is summed up in this kind of statement, to love God and to love neighbor. So Luke, he doesn't want to leave that part out. That's a big, that's a big part of the story. But when Luke goes to tell the story, he has told it in a slightly different way because it's not on the lips of Jesus that we hear that the law is summarized in loving God and neighbor. It's actually on the lips of a lawyer. Now, unless we read that too quickly, let's kind of try and place ourselves back in the first century in a Jewish context where the the law of the land was the law of God. There wasn't a secular state. The idea of secularism really hadn't hadn't evolved yet. And so we had this kind of religious nation that was bound by a religious law. And so when it makes reference to a Jewish lawyer, that's someone who knew the Torah, right? And so when when the lawyer, it says, asked Jesus in an attempt to kind of quiz Jesus, like, let's see what this rabbi really knows, right? Rabbi, how, how, what would you say is the greatest of the commandments? And Jesus kind of flips the question back at him. Well, you're the attorney. You're the lawyer, right? Why, why don't you answer that question about the law? What would you say is the greatest of all the laws? And he says, well, then, you should love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you should love your neighbor as yourself, And Jesus is right. Well, it sounds to me like you got it. Like you have the whole thing kind of summed up. Like in our opening prayer, like we read this psalm. Alex read it for us in our call to worship, Psalm 82, about God, be a God of justice, right? Be the God who sticks up for the poor, for the outcast, for the downtrodden. Like God, be yourself. Be the one who brings justice for these people. And then our opening prayer was a a prayer about the law. So maybe you hear this kind of law or commandment and it sounds a little ominous to you, like, ooh, I don't know, is this too much or is this too strict or is this going to be exclusive? But know this, that the whole law, all of the Torah, 
is summed up in this singular statement about loving God and neighbor. And that's the only rubric we have to judge all those other rules, right? The law is meant to give life, not to take it away. Um, One of my uh, uh, favorite uh, theologians would say, everything you need to know about God is found in the Old Testament. That's interesting, isn't it? Everything you need to know about God is found in the Old Testament. Well, another one of my favorite theologians, a different one, a pastor, he said, um, he, he would, when he often referred to the Scriptures, he was referring to what we would call the Old Testament. And when he referred to the New Testament, he would, he would call it the uh, apostolic witness. Isn't that fascinating? Right? So that when we say it old and new, that doesn't mean like the old has kind of passed away, we have something new now. But what was intended from the beginning when it's correctly read, when it's interpreted as it should be interpreted, could be summed up in the singular statement, love God and love neighbor. Now, in a lot of ways, I think we should be able to just finish right there. We should celebrate that. We should seek to practice in our lives. And we could go home early today, right? And maybe we could have if that stinking attorney didn't want to kind of fill his britches, as my grandmother used to say, right? Right? If we could actually live our lives where we love God and love our neighbor, if that was, again, the rubric by which we measured all the things that we did in our lives, the attitudes that we have, the, the actions that we participate in, the words that we say, if they were measured by loving God and loving neighbor, I think we'd have it. But the attorney couldn't leave it at that, right? Jesus has already said, you got the right answer. But he says, yes, but who is my neighbor? Mm, gotcha. Who's my neighbor? So now Jesus offers the parable of what we call the Good Samaritan. So the Good Samaritan is a story, it's a fictional story, that Jesus told in order to answer the attorney's question, who is my neighbor? After the attorney had already said, the whole law could be summed up and love God and love neighbor. Yeah, but who's my neighbor? And so we get this story. And it's a story that we know, we know pretty well. Um, There's a man, we don't know who he is, but he's on the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and these bandits come and attack him. And so he's laying there, mostly dead. Is that almost dead? What what, what am I seeking for? Yeah, nearly dead. Yeah, he's nearly dead, right? Just just like uh, um, Wesley, thank you. I should watch the movie more. Right, so he's, he's, he's nearly dead, he's mostly dead, and a priest comes by and passes and goes the other way, right, and as does a Levite, and then a Samaritan comes. So before we get to the Samaritan, let's, let's pause on the priest and the Levite. They're kind of following the rules. There are parts of the law that they are adhering to, because part of the law would say If you're on your way to worship, you can't touch something that's dead. You can't touch blood because that's spiritually unclean. So you need to keep yourself pure on your way to worship. And so there's a certain extent to which the priest, by crossing the street and going the other, you know, kind of circumventing this this man who's kind of laying there, mostly dead, is kind of following the law or at least following part of the law. The Levite's doing the same thing. And so this is a good lesson for us. Sometimes we allow our religion to get in the way of us following our God. 
I'm going to say that again. Sometimes we allow our religion to get in the way of us following our God. One of another, a lot of quotes today. This comes from one of my favorite pastors. Her name is Barbara Brown Taylor. In her book, Holy Envy, Finding God in the Faith of Others, she writes this. Barbara says, the only clear line I draw these days is this. When my religion tries to come between me and my neighbor, I will choose my neighbor. Jesus never commanded me to love my religion. The only line I draw is this. When my religion tries to come between me and my neighbor, I choose my neighbor because Jesus never commanded me to love my religion. Love God and love neighbor. The whole law is summed up in this one thing. Now, it's easy to imagine, right, and particularly in bad times, and we don't, that doesn't take a lot of imagination for us these days, to imagine when times are tough. But when times are tough, we can imagine that we can draw lines that would separate us from others, right? It's easy to, it seems to be easy anyway, to know who's us and who's them. But if if we backed up about 60 or 70 years, we'd find ourselves in the mid-20th century, and Anne Frank, um, a little young Jewish girl, kept a diary. And in it, she wrote this. This is Anne Frank. In spite of everything, I still believe that people are really good at heart. And you know her story, right? You know Anne dies in a concentration camp. She says, in spite of everything, I still believe that people are really good at heart. I simply can't build my hopes on a foundation consisting of confusion, misery, and death. I see the world, Anne tells us, gradually being turned into a wilderness. That's not good. I hear the ever-approaching thunder which will destroy us too. I can feel the sufferings of millions. I can feel the sufferings of millions. And yet... If I look up into the heavens, I think that it will all come right, that this cruelty too will end, and that peace and tranquility will return again. That's the hope that I want. That's that's the vision that I want, to be able to see beyond the present circumstances and to be able to embrace a hope and a peace that I believe is offered to us in this commandment to love God with our heart, with our soul, with our mind and our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. So the Gospels tell us this over and over again. Matthew says it, Mark says it, Luke says it. But what's interesting, if we keep reading in the New Testament, it, e- it even kind of boils it down a bit more. Early in Paul's career, he's writing to the churches in Galatia, and he says this, the whole law is summed up in one saying, love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting, he didn't, even, he didn't even include the first part about love God. He just said, the whole law is summed up in one saying, love your neighbor as yourself. Years later, we'll call it mid-career for Paul, right? He's writing to the church in Rome. And he's, he's written this kind of very long, lengthy, uh, kind of theological argument about who God is and who Christ is and what the work of Christ has done in us and how it's reconciled people to God and people to one another, both Jews and Greeks. And he's worked through all of this stuff and he's talked about 
you know, how do we uh, live with one another? How do we live as now Christians in this predominantly non-Christian world? And what happens with the government? Yada, 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 yada. And he finally sums it up with this. He's, he's halfway through chapter 13 and he says, the whole law is summed up in one statement, to love your neighbor as yourself. Because if we're loving our neighbor as ourself and we're doing that with consistency, that will, that will include, that will encompass also then a love for God. Because it'll be impossible, I think, for us to love our neighbors without also then loving, loving our God. Now, there are other characters in this story, of course. There's the Samaritan who comes and helps and in this story, and I'm sure you've heard this before, uh, that Samaritans were, were um, considered outsiders from a Jewish perspective. They were ethnically outsiders. They were religiously outsiders. And so to, to tell a story about a good Samaritan would have sounded in the ears of a first century Jewish person as somewhat of an oxymoron, right? A good Samaritan. It's like plastic glasses. It's like jumbo shrimp, right? It's like Microsoft Works. You know, none of those things are true. Um, <laughs> but, but here, right, the, the attorney has to say, you know, who, who was the neighbor to the man who was beaten? And the obvious answer is the one who showed him mercy, right? The Samaritan, right? He wasn't Jewish. So if we, if we recast the story in our culture today, we'd have to say the man who wasn't Christian. It wasn't the Christian person who was uh, the neighbor, it was this person of another religion, this person of a different ethnicity from the dominant group who showed mercy. And the one who showed mercy was the neighbor to the one who was suffering. But I'm going to ask a more difficult question, and hopefully it doesn't sound too fanciful. But what about the bandits? What about the perpetrators of the crime? What do we do with them? Interestingly, are you familiar with the TV show, The Chosen? We've shown a couple of clips over the last year or so. It's pretty popular. It's a kind of retelling of Jesus in the Gospels, and it's, uh, it's kind of beautifully done. It's very, um, you know, the cinematography and the characterizations and the storytelling is at a really, really high quality. Again, we've shown several clips uh, from the TV show, over the last several months. I'm not good with time. So it could have been two years. I'm not sure. It could have been two months. <laughs> COVID, you know. But what The Chosen does with this story is really fascinating on multiple levels. One, this is a fictional story in the Gospels. Like, without a doubt, this is just a parable. There was no man going on the road down to Jericho that got hurt. I mean, there might have been plenty historically that it happened to. But Jesus is, is telling a parable. It's a fictional story. But what the TV show does is it recasts it as though it was an actual historical account, like it actually had happened, which is interesting because typically they're kind of following the kind of best interpretive practices, and so they're being quite creative when they chose to do that. And so we find uh, Jesus, and he has sent his disciples to help this guy. He's kind of down and out. And... Um, Jesus comes, and they're sitting around this campfire, and it turns out, what, you, what we find out watching, watching this television version of the story, is that the person that they're there helping is one of the guys who had 
one of the bandits, one of the guys who had robbed the man on the way down from Jericho. And you hear a bit of his backstory. And in, in the, their telling of it, it sounds a bit like uh, Jean Valjean from, you know, Les Mis. You know, he's, he's in prison, but he's in prison because he's stolen bread, but he stole bread to feed his sister and his, his uh, nieces and nephews, or nieces, I forget exactly how the story goes, right? That people sometimes do make the wrong choice, but why they make the wrong choice, we haven't, you know, we haven't walked a mile in their shoes, so it's kind of, it'd be, it would be rash to kind of judge them for their activities. There's a, there's a, there is a, a, a Christian vision that reaches beyond, um, beyond just kind of the inclusion of the religious or ethnic other, to perhaps even to embrace those who have kind of done harm. And one of the reasons is for that, that we need that to be the case. Like, we need to have a faith that can make room for people who have even done wrong and maybe this is obvious, maybe it's not obvious. One of the reasons we need a faith to make room for people who have done wrong is because we are people who have done wrong. We are people who have harmed people. We have said things and we have done things, we've acted in ways that have either hurt people physically or hurt their feelings. And so if we only have a faith that excludes perpetrators, then we all get excluded. Um, in his beautiful book, um, Exclusion and Embrace, uh, Miroslav Volf writes about this, and he writes, he says this. He says, the principle cannot be denied. The fiercer the struggle against the injustice you suffer, the blinder you will be to the injustice you inflict. We tend to translate the presumed wrongness of our enemies into an unfaltering conviction of our own rightness. Ouch, right? I'm going to say that again. Um, the fiercer the struggle against the injustice you suffer, the blinder you will be to the injustice you inflict. We tend to translate the presumed wrongness of our enemies into an unfaltering conviction of our own rightness. Now, before we go to um, critique Wolf for this and say, man, that's pretty grandiose. I don't know if you can say stuff like that. So... Miroslav, he's currently a professor of theology at Yale, but in his younger days, he was in Croatia, and his dad was a Pentecostal pastor, and the communist regime that was in charge of Croatia at the time felt like being Christian was against the law. And so Miroslav had been arrested and had been tortured by the police and been asked to kind of give up the names of other Christian ministers. And so he's kind of writing from that context, talking about exclusion and embrace. And so what we can exclude is hate. What we must exclude is evil, right? We have to exclude some things, but our inclusion, right, ultimately can include Everyone, because we believe that our God can forgive and can transform the worst of us. Um, let's see. 
Forgive me for a second. This is a little longer quote, but stay with me on this one. This is the last one. This is also from Wolf. He says, Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. So we have this kind of double exclusion. We exclude our enemies, saying they're, that treating them as though they're not humans, and we exclude ourselves from the community of sinners, not realizing that we too have participated, right? We too have been the perpetrators of evil. And he says this, but no one can be in the presence of God or of the God of the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming that double exclusion, excluding the perpetrators from being human and excluding ourselves from the community of sinners. Without transposing the enemy from the sphere of the monstrous, without uh, into the sphere of shared community, and ourselves from the sphere of the proud innocence into the sphere of the sinfulness. Right? So that is, if we spend enough time with God, we're able to realize that even those that do wrong are still human, and, and we who, who want to judge them are also sinners. When one knows, as the cross demonstrates, that the torturer will not eternally triumph over the victim, one is free to rediscover that person's humanity and imitate God's love for him or her. When one knows, as the cross demonstrates, that God's love is greater than all sin, one is free to see oneself in the light of God's justice and so rediscover one's own sinfulness. So this is what happens when we step into the light of the gospel. We both see ourselves for who we are, which is why I think Apostle Paul would say of himself, I am the chief of sinners. It doesn't mean that Paul actually was better at sinning than the rest of us, right? Because the rest of us are pretty good at it too. It meant that he had stepped into the light and realized his own shortcomings. And when we realize our own shortcomings, we are slower to judge other people for theirs. And that's a good Christian way to live to see even the perpetrator as one who needs God's love and needs God's forgiveness. When we think about that um, sermon in Matthew's gospel where Jesus is saying, this kind of, speaking of the separation of the sheep and the goats, right? And he says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was sick and you cared for me. I was a prisoner and you came to visit me. Right? And neither the goats nor the sheep seem to be overly aware of what they have or haven't done there. Right? The goats are like, well, when were you like that? And the sheep are like, well, when were you like that? And so it's not a matter necessarily of just about what we know, which kind of brings us back around to Pastor Taylor's uh, comment, right? It's not just a matter of what we know. It's also of who we are and what we do. And our religion is, is not a religion that's reducible to just a set of beliefs. But it must embody a life that is modeled after Christ. So that the whole law, indeed we could even say the whole gospel 
is summed up in this one statement, to love God and to love neighbor. Now that's, that's a reality that I can get behind. That's something that I can devote myself to, both personally and collectively. That's a world that I think is worth creating. And I believe it's a world that will be created, but not just out of our own, um, the, the sheer force of our own will, but I think it's a world that will be created that God has promised us and has even invited us to participate in. So we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When that prayer gets answered, when the kingdom of God and the will of God is established on earth as it is in heaven, we will see this kind of love and this kind of justice realized in our midst. One of my favorite philosophers says that justice is what love looks like in public, just like Tenderness is what love feels like in private. I'll say that one again. Justice is what love looks like in public, just like tenderness is what love feels like in private. And I think we get all of those things, the personal and the communal, the, the, um, the, the righteousness and the justice, all of that gets wrapped up, again, in this one statement, love God and love our neighbors. Lord, may this become a reality. May this become a world in which we live. And may we become agents inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit to make that world a reality. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.